Bibles with you. Turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 17. 
First Chronicles chapter 17, and while you're there, go ahead and hold your place in Psalm 16. First Chronicles 17, and then Psalm 16. So this text in First Chronicles begins the, the picture of God with David creating his Davidic covenant and all the promises to the people of God that he promises to David and to Israel that he will fulfill in him and through him. So while we read, I want you to think about who, who would have ever believed or imagined the ways that God would fulfill his promises. And the way I unpack Psalm 16, it'll be still a further prophecy, but David shedding greater light on how that covenant will be fulfilled and what it means for us. So 1 Chronicles 17, beginning in verse 3, I'll read through verse 15. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build a house to dwell in. Build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. It's a picture of God proclaiming to David and, and to all of God's people, what is, it that, what is it that you have done that I should repay you? What have, what have you done to establish a house or a dynasty or a kingdom or a people? What have you done that has not first come from me? I am the originator. I, I am the initiator. I am the one who will build my house. I am the one who will seek and find and deliver and keep all of my people. I am the one who will build my house. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I'll turn over to Psalm 16 with me. 
read the whole text. So in light of 1 Chronicles 17 and in light of this text in Psalm 16, I want you to ask yourself, where, how far back do you go when you think of God's love and care for you? And where do you go when you are seeking to establish a rest and a peace and a direction for your life? What is the source of all your hope? Where does all your comfort come from? Psalm 16, entitled, A Mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Notice David doesn't merely say, you are the Lord. You are my Lord. You have claimed me for yourself, and I will claim you as mine. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning grateful that you are our God, and that you have loved and sought us out. And that you have in Christ kept and fulfilled all of the promises of your word. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ for sinners like us. For we in Christ, we are your house. We are your temple. We are the people that you have gone after and loved and sought and pursued. That you have delivered, that you have kept, that you uphold. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to us this morning with an abiding sense of being loved everlastingly. That there would be a sweet taste of Christ and the mercies of God upon our soul. That you would search us out and that you would, you would examine what is it that we, we prize most. Where do we go to find all of our contentment? What is the hope that we set before our eyes on a daily basis? Show us the ways in which we still live with such a, a distrustful and wayward heart. Show us the ways in which you have taken all of our great need and our sins upon Christ and have sealed us with his blood and pardoned us in him and 
given us your Holy Spirit to keep us and to draw us near. Pray that you would help every soul here be persuaded anew of how deeply you have loved us and that you have loved us from eternity, that you have sought us, Lord. And that we would we'd be more conscious of the remaining competing trusts and idols in our hearts. What is it that we hold up against God that we find to be superior to you? What keeps us from having infinite joy and contentment in Christ, from finding our all in God? What causes our souls to want to continue to live in such stubborn restlessness? Because we, we doubt the free goodness of God, the infinite goodness of God, the goodness, a goodness in God that would, would melt our hearts and would overwhelm and overcome even the greatest of our sins and the greatest of our fears and the greatest of our needs. Cause our hearts to look away from ourselves and we pray that Christ would be exalted and that he would be sweet, that he would be full, and that the freeness of his sufficiency and his sacrifice, his blood and his, his life in our place would move our hearts toward you because you have moved toward us first. We pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray that you would show us your glory afresh, that there would be renewed sense of the hope that we have in you as our great king, as our great God, and that your loving kindness is better than life. And if there is any soul here that has not come to Christ, that is resisting Christ, that is resisting infinite mercies, that is resisting and denying, suppressing infinite goodness in God, we ask that you would work powerfully and graciously and awaken and stir the souls of every person here. Make Christ irresistible to our hearts and draw us into him. We ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand.
chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we will also read from Romans 5, so if you want to put your finger in Romans 5 as well, to begin with, we will start with Acts chapter 2, through 33, a portion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. To, to picture that uh, I used to not see, right, because I was hung up on the discussion about tongues, you know, and I'm not, I, I don't want to denigrate the discussion about tongues, what tongues are in the scriptures, I, I'm not going to denigrate the pursuit of trying to understand that ancillary point, but I got hung up on the discussion and missed the big picture, right, so the big picture is not only Christ, Peter's preaching Christ, but think about what just gets obliterated here. Hindrances to people hearing about Christ. Right? So all these people are coming from different places, speak different languages, and the apostles and disciples start praying, and everybody can hear in their own language. And what are they hearing? They're hearing the glories of Christ. And it's bewildering to them. Right? And Peter takes this opportunity to give them Christ or back up to the 10 mile up view God eliminates the language barrier to go after his people it just eliminates the barrier I will give my people Christ Peter says 
I will give them Christ. That's the big picture. God's love, full to overflowing, spilling out, language barrier out of the way. Let's give them a full Christ. Let's give them a beautiful Christ. There's, there's the picture. We get hung up on the tongues. We can talk about tongues later. The point is the glory of Christ. And the point is the love of God pouring out to sinners to give us Christ. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, I'll read through verse 33. This is Peter speaking. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now flip with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll read Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious triune God, we do come before you this morning and we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who condescends. God who condescends to sinners like us, not because we're worthy of it, but because you in eternity past, set your love upon a people, and you will not be denied your people. And in all of your providence, and all of your sovereign goodness, you have purposed to eliminate all obstacles so that we would come to know you as our God, and you would come to know us as your people. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the fullest expression of your love to us. We thank you that he was born in the fullness of time under the law that he might redeem those like us who were under the law and could not get out from under its condemning heat and glare. And I pray this morning that if we have not closed with Christ, if we have not come and laid hold of the free offer of love determined from eternity past, I pray that this morning we would do so again afresh, anew. Maybe, maybe we've been a believer for a long time and yet we've lived in a callous unbelief. The richness and the beauty of Christ, not sweet on our tongues anymore, not, not sweet to our spiritual taste as much as it used to be. Lord, help us. Send your spirit this morning to help us so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and depth, and to know the love of Christ, to know by experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray this morning, Lord, that all the means of grace that we encounter, the preaching, the teaching, the singing, the fellowship, the reading from the scriptures, would all bring us to the place where we learn to live upon the fullness of Christ in his righteousness. Be persuaded of the everlasting love that you have had for us and love having it so. And all this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you please stand?
Just 
What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart?
Good to be with you this morning. If you will, open your Bibles back to Psalm 16. And if, uh, if you don't have an outline, there should be still some on the edge of that table back there. Uh, I think the outline will be a help. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to um, commune with you and worship with you this morning and to feed upon Christ, and especially the help uh, that this psalm has been to me. Um, someone too easily given over to anxious fears and trying to carve out every conceivable way I can to feel like I'm in control. And the fear of what will happen if I'm not. So before I, I pray and open up the text this morning, I, one thing I'd ask came to mind was an old, an old evangelist uh, quote that he used to say often came to my mind as we were singing. And it's actually what they engraved on his tombstone. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? What are you living for? And what would the people around you say animates you most? But the second question I would ask, where, where does the power and motivation of your heart and your life come from? One, what are, what are we living for? But maybe more fundamentally, more importantly, what is causing us to live for that? What drives what upholds you? Where do you go for all meaning and comfort and purpose? Not, not the Sunday school answer, but when everything seems to be in a mess. What is, what is the instinct that your heart and your mind goes to? Let's, let's pray and then I'll, I'll open up the message. Heavenly Father, you are an infinitely boundless fountain of free, eternal love. You always have been and you always will be. Christ coming in the flesh as our substitute did not make you a father, nor did your spirit regenerating us and uniting us to Christ and adopting us make you a father. You eternally in the infinite depths of your being you are an outward looking father all the way down. All that you've ever been is an overflowing self-giving other focused lover. And you have loved and beheld and gloried in your Son who perfectly reveals you to us as needy sinners. And in Him and by your Spirit seeks to woo our souls into the depths of infinite fatherly love. And we pray that this morning you would, you would by your Spirit, impact the Word as it is preached and that it would be believed and received by every soul here 
so that every heart would, would find such a fullness in you that there would be a relinquishing and an uncovering and an unveiling of their souls before you because they've been persuaded of what a Christ they have. Such a Savior that has come and reconciling the world to Himself. That alone gives a picture of the eternal creator of the universe utterly, utterly beyond and outside the scope of anything that we would ever dare to imagine ourselves. We who are great and needy and full of corruption and insignificant and ignorant and lost, consumed and turned in upon ourselves by nature, having nothing we can give to you in return. It is your eternal heart to pour out your love in Christ eternally going after sinners like us to win and to reconcile and to restore and to redeem and to renew for all eternity. Because as, as William Bates said, you lacking in nothing had no need to create the universe. But you are such an inexhaustible fountain of blessing in yourself. You could not but help to create, not to impart any, any glory or good to you, but to impart infinite good on the creature. That your glory is neither diminished nor extended by the worship of angels, he says. Your magnificence and your goodness and your love cannot be undone. So we pray that you would minister to us this morning and we would behold in the face of Jesus Christ such a redeemer and a king for us that in him we would see you and be persuaded afresh, perhaps for the first time in the depths of our being of who our great God truly, eternally, always has been and that nothing in us or outside us could ever undo it so that we, like David, would cry that you, O God, apart from you, I have no good thing. You are a refuge. You are the keeper of our souls. Help us this morning, Lord. Help every weary soul find the only place that their souls will find rest. And make every resistant, every unbelieving heart, every presumptuous heart, every hardened heart. Make that soul compelled to come to Christ. It cannot but want to be won and known and loved by Him. It's what we were made for. Minister to us this morning, Lord. You who are the great condescending lover of our souls. You who are the eternal free lover. Show us all the fullness of your glory, we pray. And win our hearts to you. We ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. In the year 386 A.D., the, the famous conversion of St. Augustine takes place. And prior to this, he's been studying philosophy. He's a brilliant guy. 
and he's looking for the source of good and evil. He's also living in great sinfulness, wantonness. He's compelled by the knowledge of his own giftedness, his own brilliance, his own ambition, and his own lust to, to something like what you might see in Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He, he is compelled, driven to get everything that he can for himself to find some sort of satisfaction. Maybe if I become a great scholar, that will do it. Maybe if I, I study and become a great orator, that will do it. Maybe if I chase after enough women, that will do it. Maybe if I gain enough prestige and travel the world, that will do it. So he spends his life seeking something to feel the, the insatiable longing of his heart. But in 386, he's converted to Christ. And in the midst of all of this, as it's leading up to it, he's frequently asking, where does all goodness come from? Being a, being a wise man in himself, as far as an unbeliever can be. He asks, how can there be such a thing as evil? So he's finally left to contemplate there must be an almighty God who must himself be infinitely great and infinitely good, the source of all goodness. And that finally, by the Lord's Spirit, begins to make him contemplate himself. Because if there is one who is infinitely good and infinitely great, what does that show about me? And he begins to look and see the corruption of his own heart and says he loathed himself. How could a holy and righteous and infinitely majestic God ever have peace with a wretched man like me? And so his heart is awakened to the need for God, but not assured of any comfort from God. He says he realized that he had found the pearl of great... This is years later looking back. I had found the pearl of great price, but I was not willing to buy it yet. I was hesitating. I found within myself two wills striving inside of me. One will drawing me to God's love that seemed that it would satisfy and vanquish me at the same time. And another will of my own, of my own lust that promised to please me and flatter me. But as he, the Lord brings him out of himself and he's brought to read the scriptures and look to Christ. His soul was delivered from all of his bondage and all of his lack of comfort. He discovers that it is the great and glorious God who has first and eternally loved him and been chasing after him. And it is from there that he would later write the famous words, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O oh God. Is your heart restless or unsatisfied this morning? You're dull to the things of God, disheartened, discouraged, indifferent, fearful, anxious. 
What are you looking to? Where do you go for your source of comfort? Where do you go for, for all of your sustenance, for all of your hope? Are your lust and your self-love drawing you away from God? Or are you looking to Jesus Christ in whom all the fullness of God dwells and receiving His love to draw you out of yourself into the fountain of an infinite goodness? Contrary to all that Augustine had been taught and all that we like him by nature feel, the infinite greatness and goodness of God does not create a barrier that we must overcome as sinners in order to find comfort and delight in him. Because the very essence of his greatness, the very essence and root of all of his eternal goodness and being, what proclaims and reveals all the depths of his glory is that that very same great and infinitely good and glorious God, it is his very nature to overflow and undeserve pursuing love. You could not make him otherwise. And in His beloved Son, God Himself has closed every breach there is between Him and His people. Is your soul persuaded and comforted that every conceivable breach between you and God has been taken away in Christ for you? That is, the, that is the picture, and that is the message of Psalm 16. The psalm is called a mictum of David. The word mictum, it's, it means something like precious, like fine gold, or in this case, a golden word. So historically, theologians have called this the golden psalm because of the picture that it conveys of the sheer goodness and graciousness of God to his people in meeting our deepest longing and in every need. If you look back at Psalm 16, we're going to read just our verses today, 5 and 6. You see in David in this psalm who, who began with saying that, Preserve me, O God. Keep me, O God. You are my refuge. I have no good apart from you. The sorrows of those who go after another God endlessly multiply. Those who go after some other source of life and of goodness and of beauty and of satisfaction and of hope and of rest, their sorrows continue over and over to multiply. So beginning in verse 5, David says, This Lord, this God, this Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David is here. He's working through the deepest needs of our souls. Like Augustine, he's teaching us to come to God with the depths of our being confident, persuaded to receive God in all of his fullness in Christ. Do you see that? Do you find your soul in it? 
It's one thing to be able to recite and say what the text says, but do you, in the depths of your own heart, look out to Christ and say, you are my God and my refuge. You are my comfort. You are my unshakable hope. You are my deliverer. You have loved me, and you keep me. What is your soul looking to to find life? The only place the heart can ever find its eternal rest that it longs for is in communion with Christ. So if you look at the first point of our outline in verse 5, the soul's greatest comfort in God. It says in verse 5, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, this God, he is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. As Thomas Brooks says, that even, even the name that's ascribed to God in Jehovah, that the, if you break it down into the three syllables, each one in Hebrew represents the eternality of God and the ever-constant help that he is for his people. He was, always, will be eternal God and infinitely and all-sufficient. He is now and He will be forever. Is your soul persuaded in rest and an infinite God always, now, giving Himself to you freely? Freely. because of what Christ has done. Where do you look to just now for comfort? Your heart right now is either believing and receiving Christ and all of the free mercy of God, or it's rejecting it, doubting it, putting yourself above Christ, putting yourself in the place of Christ. Doubting infinite free love to woo and to comfort and to uphold and to keep you. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. What is your portion? What do you actively feed upon in the depths of your heart and your mind each day to give life to your soul? What do you feed upon? You feed upon something. The soul must have something to live for. Do you know that you belong to Christ, but you don't draw near to Christ on a regular basis? Are you like, some, like we are by nature, like Augustine is wrestling through, how can there be one who's infinitely good and perfect, infinitely great, infinitely lovely and majestic, who would seek to do good to me? Because I haven't seen that in the face of Christ is put on display that the depth of who that God is in his glory is a fountain of eternal love. Like we've talked many times from Reeves that mercy to sinners is the application in time from a heart whose nature, his very being, 
is love for the other. Do you draw near to Christ confident that he is seeking to do you good eternally? And does it draw you out of your self-sufficiency? Does it draw you out of your dullness? Does it draw you out of your condemnation? Does it draw you out of your soul looking at yourself and wanting with full freedom to gaze upon Him who is eternally pouring Himself out into you if you will receive Him. Not only to be justified, not just to be forgiven, though that is daily needed and wonderful, but to be filled, to be empowered, to be comforted, to give wisdom, to give a, a as we, we heard last Sunday, to fill up the horizon of our souls with a vision of life that is shaped by this beauty and this mercy and this glory in Christ. Do you view God as an eternal fountain for you? An eternal fountain of mercy? David, like Augustine, realizes that the soul cannot find any lasting satisfaction or life outside of this infinite goodness. As Charnock said, God is only infinite goodness. He is not only good, but best. He not only does good, but is original and inconceivable and uncreated goodness himself. He is immutable goodness for you. The nature of God's holiness is not one that makes him withdraw and scorn those who are not like him. It's a goodness and the perfection of his holiness is the perfection of infinite free love that pours out and blesses and fills and sanctifies. And all that we spend our time chasing after everything else other than Christ. And all of the things that when life is perplexing and, and when trials come and my soul has given over to sin and I go away from Christ, I'm persuaded to doubt the depths of his love and I find something else to give me some temporary satisfaction. Or I withhold good from those around me. Because I've taken my eyes off of Christ in this free-flowing fountain of goodness and mercy. There is no greater fear in the depths of the soul than the fear of infinite free love. Because infinite free love, unconditional love, can only be received by also acknowledging that I meet none of the conditions. Will I be received? And so that's what David means when he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You are the one that my soul clings to. As Jesus says, I am meat and drink for my people. He who feeds upon me will live. My life, my blood, my righteousness, my goodness, my sufficiency, my mediation for you. 
Thomas Manton says, He that would not have God as his chief portion and chief happiness is only a beast wearing the face of a man. Because only God is all-sufficient in Himself and having no need of anything who in His love and mercy sustains all things. He alone can fill your soul. Do you draw near to God confident that He delights in filling your soul? He delights in plumbing the depths of your needs. As Rutherford used to say, come to Christ boldly and come with a big dish full of desires and meet him who satisfies and delights in meeting all of your desires. And him who is so full of kindness and mercy that he meets those desires that I'm not even able to admit that I have. The needs for mercy and grace that I, are too deep for my soul to even be able to see. Christ knows them and has taken them in himself and longs for our hearts to draw near abiding in him. And he seeks you to abide in him now. If you came here this morning with your soul dull, if you came here this morning with conflicting interests, Christ is yours now. Look to him now. Drink him in now. Receive him now. He is all of your warrant. He is all of your condition. He is all of your invitation. Look at him now. And drink your fill in him. Let him be all of your fullness. And even what you lack, let him be the one who discovers it. Don't spend your life away trying to scope out all of your infirmity and your needs. He knows them far deeper than you ever will. Look and behold Him. Taste this one whose sweetness has no comparison. Do you know such a sweetness in Christ? Do you know such a one whose mercy, who, as Winslow says, so devoted is Christ eternally to save his people that he not only planted and protected the tree that would become his cross, that he gave the conception and then raised up the men who would crucify him? And as they are beating him and crushing him and mocking him and whipping him, all he is doing is loving them. They are only able to do it because he gives them the power to do it. To undo every reservation that your heart could ever have for him. What else? Will you go to to comfort the depths of your soul or to comfort someone else's? Every other portion and every other hope, every other joy has a lacking and a corruption in it. 
Why? Because as, as Ecclesiastes 3.11 proclaims about God, you, O God, have set eternity in our hearts. This all-glorious and all-knowing and all-beautiful God who has created heaven and earth out of nothing and sustains them by the word of His power and about whom the Scripture says even the heavens cannot contain Him. So unfathomably great are His depths and His ways. He made us to bring us into Himself. Does your heart run to your Savior confident that like the Father in Luke 15 with the prodigal, He is eternally running over the hill after you? You don't know the depths of your sin. You don't know the depths of your need. You don't know what love and goodness is. And Christ has come because you're not needed to define it and produce it in yourself. Come unto me. Oh, you are weary and heavy laden. Trying like Augustine and every brilliant mind unbelieving after him. Scraping through life trying to find a way to fill it up with a goodness and a meaning that is suitable to the needs of your soul and coming up empty. Trying to be a source of security and a wisdom and a hope and a rest and an identity. Why is the world so plagued with a, a fear of identity? They don't know who they are. And no one does until you've tasted the fountain of goodness in Christ. The one for whom you were made, the portion of your souls. But it's not merely that we are finite creatures, we are sinners. Our hearts are bent away from this God because of His holiness and our guilt. But the glory of this God that David clings to in this text is that that God pursues us with love. It's who He is. You could not make Him any other way. And will you harden your heart to such infinite, eternal, free love? To turn away from boundless generosity and mercy. And to, to go after some other paltry source of contentment. Says Octavius Winslow, it is the perfection of love that drove all of the other attributes of God to accomplish our redemption in Christ. Justice may have demanded it. Holiness may have required it. Wisdom may have planned it. And power may have executed it. But it was love originating the whole and was the moving cause in the heart of God to put on display His eternal, uncreated love. Love that would disarm the terror of the slave and fill our hearts with the affection of a child. 
Is your heart filled with the persuasion that Almighty God is your Father who has loved you always? Always. He could not but love. Does your heart find in Christ such a gracious and loving refuge for the whole of your soul and your life? Do you find him all, in Him all your righteousness? Are you persuaded personally of this one who was crushed for your iniquities and who has borne all your griefs that He has and is and will love you for all eternity? And do you abide in that? Are you consciously feeding upon such eternal mercies for your soul the way that David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And any other competing trust and love that is in your soul, you cast it out. So that you must have Christ. You will not continue to live with a competing interest to infinite love, infinite mercy. Are you drawn away to some other fleeting source of comfort and hope? This psalm is primarily a messianic psalm. So as Danny read earlier, the apostles in verses 8 to 11, they make reference to it in Christ's fulfilling God's promise to provide David an heir who will reign forever. But it's not merely that the psalm is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. It's that Christ himself is the one who lived with such a confidence and a hope in his God and in his Father's love. In our place, as our covenant, as Isaiah says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Jesus Christ is the covenant for you. Do you live upon Him and all that He is as your portion? Are you persuaded of God's inexhaustible goodness for you? And if not, why not? Why not? Do you run to Him Believing that he is always running to you for you to lay yourself out upon him. All of your cares and all of your needs, all of your weakness and all of your sin and all of your unbelief and all of your corruptions and all of your misgivings and all of your imperfect motivations and cast them on him. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and you will be saved. Not once, but always. Keep looking unto me. Says Owen, if all the world should set themselves to drink free grace, mercy, and pardon, drawing water continually from the wells of salvation, 
if they should set themselves to draw one single promise, an angel standing by and crying, drink, oh my friends, drink abundantly, take as much grace and pardon as is sufficient for the whole of the world of your sin that is in each of you. They would not be able to sink the grace of the promise one hair's breadth. There is enough for millions of worlds. For it flows into it from an infinite, bottomless fountain. Do you live upon the great portion of your soul and allow all of His fullness to free you to confess and to own all of your neediness. To lay it down. As, as Michael Reeve says, abandon your heroism. You are not the hero. And one look, one draft of this Christ's love into your soul and you will never wish again to be the hero. So great is our portion in our cup. Why does Augustine say that only in God may we find our rest? Why is that? Because it's against Him that is altogether lovely and righteous that I have offended and from whom I have received everything. So only if he takes the initiative to pay my ransom and restore me to himself can I ever have any lasting rest, any lasting comfort, any lasting peace, any lasting hope. All my being was made for him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It is this reality brought to the depths of our souls in Christ. That is what is needed. That alone can give us everlasting rest and contentment. The infinite, all-wise God has loved and pursued us first. And in Jesus Christ has made Him for us wisdom from God, righteousness and holiness and redemption so that our souls are freed from never again needing to boast in anyone but Him. Drink. Drink Him in. Drink Him in now. Receive Him now. You cannot get to the bottom of Him. Are you still being drawn after a lesser portion? Something that you can see. Something that you can control. Something that you can touch. Something that is passing away. Are you beholding in Christ infinite, boundless, fathomless, bottomless, free, undeserved love?
eternally. If you look at the second point of our outline in verse 5, you hold my lot. Or some translations, you maintain my lot. That is, if you belong to Christ this morning, if you are a believer, the judge of all the earth has reconciled and is reconciling you and all the world to himself through Christ. And the Father has given to his Son. And what the Father has given to his Son, he will uphold it on the final day. No amount of your sin or your need or your failures or your attacks of Satan or the world can pluck you out of the Savior's hand. You hold my lot. From the rising of the sun to the setting, day in and day out for eternity, you hold my lot. And you have made me for yourself. The glory of Christ is that when my soul is convicted of how selfish I am and how unbelieving and how fearful and distrustful. He already knows and has taken it into himself. Receive him now. Lay down all of your good intentions and good works. Receive Christ now. Look to him now. And drink him until you cannot help but give him out. So that other sinners would be freed from the terror of a slave. No amount of your sin or anything that you will ever lack or need can pluck you out of his hand. Christ, the fountain of all goodness, beckons you to come. Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give eternal rest for your souls. I will no wise cast you out. You maintain my law. You maintain my law. Are you convinced of that? We living like it. Imagine the impact upon the world around us if our whole souls believed and were persuaded that the Lord of heaven and earth upholds our lot. One of my favorite texts in Psalm 119, 89 verses through 91, says that He is the one who has ordained all things and upholds the earth. And the final verse, all things are your servants. All things seek and do to please Him in all of His perfect gracious will. There is nothing that will ever occur that is not under His infinitely sovereign loving hand. You maintain my lot.
Where do you go to find comfort? What are you hoping in? Do you believe in a God who upholds all the comfort that you will ever need for your soul freely? If you will but believe and receive it and allow His mercy to undo the the coiled up nature of our souls that wants to deserve it. Where are you and I looking to for life, for happiness, for power, for hope, for satisfaction? Believe upon this Christ. Come to Christ and lay down upon Him all of your dead works and all of your guilt and all of your needs and all of your doubts. I wonder if you're, well, I know you are. If you're like me, if you're like all the rest of us, if you go back to a view of God like the myth of Sisyphus, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, he's the one who fooled the gods and played a trick on him, and so they punish him for eternity by giving him this giant rock to roll up a hill for eternity. And every time he gets to the top, it gives way and falls back down, and so eternity is him just rolling up a giant boulder with no rest and no satisfaction and no completion and no contentment and never any sense that he can assuage the justice of the gods. Is that how you look to the Father? Because he is the utter, complete opposite. Maybe you're still laboring and suffocating under that condemning weight right now. Maybe. Poor soul, the lover of your soul has come for you to cast all of your guilt and your shame and your burdens upon him. Give your sins to me, Jesus says. You don't know what to do with them. I do. Turn your eyes upon Christ and look and find all your guilt and your shame and your burdens and your need for righteousness in Him. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. His mercies are new every morning. Does Christ need to be replenished every morning? The Lord uses the language and lamentations to cater to us. My mercies are new every morning. He is constant and overflowing. I need to be replenished every morning. Come to me freely. What are you living for? I often find myself refusing this infinite comfort in God because I won't let Christ be all for me and abandon my self-sufficient heroism. To let Christ alone be the soul's safety and rest and treasure and commitment. I won't let Jesus bear all my burdens. Is that you? Or do you hope in Him as your portion and your lot? Look to verse 6 with me now. 
point two in our outline, the soul's greatest happiness in God's sovereign love. David says, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Can you say that? Think about what David is saying. Everything, absolutely everything that has ever come, that is coming, or ever will come, has fallen for me in pleasant places. Is your soul persuaded of that? Because you've looked away from your circumstances and from yourself to this depths of the eternal love of God who has ordained all things to bring you into himself in Christ. I promise to do good to you always, he says. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Are you persuaded of that here? Are we living upon the infinite goodness and wisdom of God to free us from needing to be the ones who are the masters of our own universe? And are you and I growing together as the church, as his bride? Are we living together in the confident hope of the king's eternal, perfect, caring reign for us and over us and in us? And if not, why not? What good has he left from us? What good could he ever withhold from you? If he will not spare his own spotless son, will he not also give us all lesser good things? If he will not keep from us infinite goodness himself, freely, what would cause him to sparse out any lesser good? Is your heart feeling the comfort and the eternal care of the Father for you? Or if you have suffered much, if you have been hurt or abused, if the cross that you're bearing has involved physical pain and suffering, disease, heartache, loss, if your loved ones seem to be fleeing as far away from Christ as possible, can he still be the eternal and infinitely loving king for us? Or with all the turmoil and the evil and the destruction in the world, where is the sovereign God of love? Are the cares of your soul in this world beyond all that you can even bring yourself to express and feel the weight of the longings too much to hope in God. Oh, poor soul. Look to Jesus Christ. This Son of God and this Son of Man and this sweet and blessed King who is a slain lamb upon the throne eternally for you.
Can you resist his infinite love and comfort still? What causes me to not see the goodness of God in all of the different circumstances of my life? Because my heart, like an unbeliever, has gone back to thinking that there's something that God owes me. Or that I owe Him because of my sin. And I'm terrified of being utterly indebted to mercy. Truly being, like as Sinclair Ferguson said, there is all the difference in the world between mastering the doctrines of sovereign grace and being mastered by the God of sovereign grace. Because my heart and my life being laid down at the feet of the King where I have nothing but the hope of His promise of mercy, if I'm not persuaded that He is infinitely free goodness, that is the most terrifying thought in the world. Because I imagine his mercy is like the poor pittance of mercy that I would dole out to someone. Not that he is an unsearchable ocean of mercy. And that all his being delights to fill others freely with their need. Are you persuaded the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places? If you belong to Jesus Christ, can you trace back the time when you did not belong to Him? Do you remember what it was like when your soul was first awakened and drawn to Him and comforted in His love? And your soul was laid out in a comfort and a rest that you'd never known because how could it be you have loved me? You have loved me out of all of my sin and all of my need and out of the mass of humanity. You have loved me. Like Job says at the end, behold, I am vile. I repent in dust and ashes. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And you have loved me. And that same one has orchestrated all of the ages of time to bring you to himself. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I need nothing else. Why do our souls so often groan with words too, too, with longings too deep for words and fear that God has forsaken us? 
Because only in the cross of Jesus Christ where infinite, unsearchable, perfect, eternal justice and infinite, unsearchable, eternal, free love meet. Does justice smile and ask no more of us? Are you gazing upon Christ crucified for the whole of your life? and abandon any life without it. Like the song from C.T. Studd, only when life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Because you were burned out for me first. When I had no desire for you, and still often have no desire for you. As Lewis portrays in The Great Divorce, for all of the evil and all of the darkness and all of the corruption and all of the hopelessness of this world and even the depths of hell, once his characters are lifted out into the glories of Christ, And once our souls are lifted up to see heaven's grace and glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ, all the depths of hell and sin and destruction and ruin and sorrow are but like a slight crack in the universe by comparison. It is a small sliver in the fabric of eternity and space and time. So infinite, so inexhaustible, so glorious, and so endless, and so overflowing is the greatness of the love and the mercies of God in Jesus Christ that by comparison, all of heaven and earth and all of Satan and death and demons and hell are less than a pinprick, less than dust on the scales. So superabounding is His sovereign grace toward us, all who come to Him in faith. What area of your life are you still running to keep for yourself? Because you're terrified of He won't still be infinitely merciful to you if you give it up to Him. As Lewis says, only that which we give to Christ can ever truly be ours anyway. Whatever I keep for myself, I am its slave. I don't possess it. It possesses me. Christ sets me free from the enslavement of it. Because I need no other portion. You see, David says in verse 2, I have no good or goodness apart from you, O Lord. In verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods multiply over and over and over. Because in God alone, who is rest, can my soul ever find eternal rest. He has rested in His love, in His work, in His life. Do you know that Augustine's mother prayed for him for years and years and years and years? that he might turn to Christ 
and away from the brokenness of his sin. And it was actually on his selfish ambition to become a great teacher, studying under Ambrose, who himself was a believer. He was impressed by his intellect and his teaching. But what won him, he said, was the kindness of his heart. I had to know his Christ. And then within months of Augustine's conversion, his mother Monica died. And in grief-stricken tears, Augustine wrote, yet still with mournful joy over his mother's death, truly, she neither died unhappy, nor did she altogether truly die. Because he knew that she was God's and God was hers. And that now also for her son and then even her husband, this God was their portion. We look at the last point in the outline. Rejoicing in God is our greatest treasure. So David says in verse 6b, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is this beautiful inheritance? Is it just heaven? Is it waiting for eternity? Or is it God himself to you? The highest joy and privilege and good of being brought into the folds of God himself. Says Lewis, the old ache and longing and restless yearning of the soul can only be satisfied by finding our all in eternal love of our great triune God and seeing him as the one for whom our souls were made to know by his grace that you have by faith become a real ingredient in the divine happiness. Not to please yourself, but to know by experience through Christ and his righteousness your believing life has pleased God. Says Richard Sibbs, this infinitely great God in goodness is like a breast that loves to ease itself of milk. It is an infinitely spreading goodness. He cannot but give himself to us in Christ. He cannot but love and bless us in Christ. He cannot but delight in all of our good and being our all in all. He cannot but relieve us from our wasted efforts and our own righteousness and to deliver us from the anxious toil of our self-improvement and our self-importance and our selfish interests and our fearful distance and withdrawing and our endless longing to finally and fully be known and yet fully and finally and freely and eternally be loved in spite of it. He is such a God of infinitely altogether outgoing goodness. He cannot but create and give and bestow and bless and comfort and forgive and save and deliver and uphold and satisfy. Will you go on looking for another fountain? There isn't one. Cast away 
the idols that cling to you so closely, your own strength and your own understanding and your own goodness and your own will and your own desires, what good has ever come from them? Here in Christ, O oh sinners, here alone is our blessed and merciful God of love, the rest and identity that our souls so desperately thirst for. Are you drinking him in? Mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Uncover and admit all your unworthiness and all the guilt and condemnation we deserve. And in spite of it all, because of Him, this bottomless fountain of all love and all goodness and all blessing and all that is great and all that is lovely, all that is splendid, this eternal Father, this all-glorious and self-giving and loving God has been pleased to crush His Son in our place that for all eternity your heart may never again be in fear of not being loved. Never again be in fear of carrying the burden of being your own God. Never again carry the burden of being your own source of comfort and your own source of rest. And never again needing to be at the center of your world or anyone else's. What an exhausting way to live. Such infinite otherworldly love has it disarmed your heart from the terror of a slave this morning. Behold in Jesus Christ this fountain of mercy. Come to the waters and drink without money and without price. Are you and I as the people of God who have been so loved living with such a taste of God's love that His mercies through us are disarming the terrors of the slaves around us. Let it be so from this day forward. May our God in all His fullness and mercy be our only portion and our only hope and our only rest. Most gracious God, we thank you and praise you that you are our God. Early do we seek you. Earnestly we seek you. As a dry, as a man who is in dry and weary land where there is no water. Oh, how your steadfast love, your eternal love is better than life. Let no soul here go on chasing after broken cisterns that can hold no water that have no life in them all of life is an endless filling of their own self-made cistern their own self-made fountain with all the misery and with all the emptiness and with all the bitterness and with all the dissatisfaction and with all the broken relationships oh God draw us to you sweetly in Christ Awaken a thirst in our souls that we are persuaded can only be and is and will be met in our sweet King Jesus. May we be a people 
who live consciously upon endless, superabounding mercies for each other's sake and for your glory. And we ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. You could stand. Eternal grace. 
Amen. 